Welcome to Design Meets Business, a show where design leaders talk about practical ways to quantify design, about making our work more transparent, and about how designers can make a bigger impact in their organization. I'm your host, Christian Vasile. And before we begin, I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Today, I'm talking to Ioana Teleanu, who is working as a UX manager at UiPath, but is more well-known in the design world for her design academy, Mento, and for the content she posts under the handle UX Goodies. This conversation is not so much about the content, though, but more about the importance of speaking the language of our stakeholders, how she started in design and what you could learn from that, and about how you can change the mentality around design when you're the only designer in a company. There's plenty for you to learn in the next hour. Enjoy. Ioana, welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm excited to have a fellow Romanian on the podcast today. That's a first. You are currently the UX manager at UiPath, a Romanian unicorn company, as is being called nowadays, I guess. But outside of UiPath, you do a lot of things for the design community. And I don't even know where to start, whether that's mentoring designers, whether that's creating content for them on social media, hosting your own podcast. There's a lot to talk about there. So why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about how it all started for you and how you got to where you are today. And we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be excited to talk about my journey. But before heading into the, this topic uh, and unpacking it, I just want to say thank you for having me on your show. <laughs> and thank you for the invitation. And thanks to anyone who's uh, listening right now to this conversation between us. And I'm also happy to speak to a fellow Romanian. It's pretty exciting because most of the podcast appearances and even my own podcast, they're made of conversations with people from all over the world. So I rarely get to speak to a fellow Romanian. So yeah to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And to get back to your question of how my journey started, I think it's interesting because I keep answering this question for several years now. And it, the, the beginning feels further and further away. Like at some point, I will probably not even be able to remember how it all started because it's going to be so, so far away in the in the past. But yeah, I keep rehearsing it. So I know the story. <laughs> right now, I, I'm able to deliver an answer. So actually, when I went to school, I think everything, well, actually, everything started in my childhood, but I'm not going to go that far away. Uh, so when I finished university, I didn't have, I don't have a design background because there wasn't even that option in Romania back then. I'm not sure it is, there's the option now. I think it, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. No. I think there are some like six months uh, programs within different universities, but nothing dedicated to to design, uh, digital design, UX design, and product design in general. So this option wasn't an option back then. That's why I uh, went and got hired into a big, big company, ING Bank. It was a bank. My family was ecstatic. Everybody was so <laughs> proud. She made it. She's in a, like working in a multinational was like the, the best you could do in your twenties. Like I was uh, the pride <laughs> of the family, <Yes. laughs> but uh, obviously I wasn't as excited as everyone else was because I was working in a call center. It wasn't very glamorous as you can imagine. 
And so I kept switching jobs within the ING bank, which was great, having the opportunity of exploring different positions, different roles, different things, different aspects of how a big company works. And then eventually I ended up witnessing the creation of the UX department, which was very exciting to watch because I started having this feeling that, okay, maybe that's what I want to do. I feel, I feel hypnotically drawn to, to, to whatever it was that the designers were doing. So I started researching the topic. I started like shadowing them, lurking on on their meetings and everything. The more I got into the topic, the more exciting it felt. So I, um, at some point, I explicitly manifested the intention of becoming a UX designer with uh, my manager. And from that moment on, I actually waited for one and a half or two years before getting the job officially. So it wasn't instant. It wasn't immediate. And this message goes to anyone who's contemplating a career in UX design. It's not going to be overnight. You really have to put in the effort and sort of strive for it if you want. So... So yeah, so that's how I think I went into a lot of detail as to how my journey began, but I transitioned in uh, from a non-design role in, in a bank. And then um, I moved to UiPath, which eventually became the first Romanian unicorn, got listed on New York Stock Exchange. It was the best success story that Romania had so far in terms of startups going so big. And um, apart from that, I also always had consultancy gigs, part-time roles, different projects that I work on. I collaborated with design agencies, with different startups from all over the world. So I, I just couldn't sit still in, in just <laughs> one role. I think that it's maybe a designer's uh, disease in general. We have to do several things because I think one thing informs the other. So it's really an opportunity for growth and for becoming better in your daytime role if you have like this part-time role or project-based roles as well. So I always kept feeding this appetite for experimentation and trying different industries, teams, projects, and so on. So so I think that's me in a nutshell, plus all the content part, but I'm not going to go into so much detail on that. So we have time to talk about something else as well. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. There's a interesting something, uh, something interesting that you said there is the way you started by going through different roles and ending up becoming a designer. And I, I feel that a lot of the people we've had on the show have a similar story. Nobody really started out thinking, I want to become a designer because whether there was not a thing called design or whether they just wasn't, they just weren't aware that it exists, right? So uh, you you kind of find out as you're jumping from one job to another that you want to be a designer. What was it that attracted you to it? Looking back, I think that probably I have some false memories about it because now I'm giving the interpretation of everything I know about design today. I'm adding that storytelling layer to everything. So it was more so. So to be completely honest, if I take out everything that I know today and if I take out this magical storytelling uh, layer that I feel like adding to the to the story, I think it was just some sort of intuition that maybe I would be right for it. I didn't really understand what it was, but I sort of it was quite immediately obvious that it's about people. It's about solving problems. It's about talking to your users, understanding how to build products they love, understanding how to make products better and ultimately their lives better. So I don't know if there are people out there who would, wouldn't be attracted to this idea. I think it's pretty seductive for anyone. But for me, I was a 
person who was fascinated by people for all my life, even since childhood. I'm into all sorts of things, psychology, trying to unpack what goes on in people's minds and their emotions and everything. So I'm naturally drawn towards understanding people. And I felt like this job kind of combines working in a company, in a team. So I, I don't have to become a therapist to work <laughs> with people, but I can solve problems for them through technology. And I think that was very seductive and powerful. Yeah. We had someone in the past who, in the past um, on the show who said that she also started working in a call center first and became a designer afterwards. But she feels that while she was in the call center, she was doing the job of a UX designer without being called a UX designer. Because at the end of the day, you solve problems, you talk to customers, and uh, you solve problems the best way we can. So it's Absolutely a, a bit correct. of a parallel. Absolutely correct. I think the call center was the, the, the best foundation I could have for my career uh, as a UX designer because you start, I started by listening to people, which is what you do as a designer, essentially. I think uh, some of these jobs, I think it was Casey Neistat who said, someone asked him, well, how do you, how did you find out what you wanted to do in life? And he said, well, I had all these crap jobs and I knew while doing these jobs that I didn't want to do them. So kind of through that <laughs> experimentation, I found out what I didn't want to do. And through that, I found out what I did want to do. And for me, it's a bit similar because while I didn't work in a call center, I worked in a sales call center. So it's, it's a bit, it's outbound, not inbound. And I knew right away that is just not something I want to do for the rest of my life. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's, uh, it's figuring out what you don't want to do first and then you find out what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. For me, that was the case for my personal life. Like having different relationships with people kind of helped me understand what I care about in relationships in right. general and helped me filter out people as I grew older. <laughs> yeah, I think that is still valid today in any area of life, but mostly at work, I can see it manifesting because when you work at a company in a specific team with specific people that you maybe don't feel that you're a really good fit there. That's how you find out where you want to work, who you want to work with, what type of companies. For me, I know agencies are not really my thing. I prefer to be in-house, but that's because I worked in agencies and I, I had that experience. So I always say to people who, who ask me, well, I'm working in this place and I'm not really enjoying. And I ask, well, what do you think that means? If you're not enjoying it, what do you really think it means? And I'm like, oh, well, I, I guess it means I don't really, I shouldn't do more of this, you know? Yeah, exactly. You got to have some bad experiences to, to figure out what you want to do. At least that's the way I think about it. Did the, because before you became a designer, you were also a content manager, right? So you, you had a lot to do with the content of, of the bank. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It was a job still in the digital team. So I was, so the banking app for ING Romania is called Home Bank. And so I was working on the banking app. Uh, I was sort of very, very close to UX designers and product managers, but I was doing something completely different. I was actually managing the content and um, what I would say it, it was like a side product. It, was, it wasn't the direct banking product. It was a product that would give you uh, your some money back when you were shopping with ING card. So uh, sort of cashback program, if you want, very, to put it very simply. So I was the one who was operating with all the offers, making sure the offers make sense, that the images look good, that the logo is good and I was working with Photoshop which eventually became my first design tool and at that point nobody was using Sketch at least in Romania. Sketch or Figma wasn't even around and uh, Adobe XD wasn't launched at all so so the thing is that I started doing UX design in Photoshop so the thing that 
helped me kind of pick up very quickly the UX job was that I mastered this tool. But if eventually in my career, I understood that tools are like the last or the least important part of the design process. It's the process and the product thinking that matter. But knowing the tool kind of gave me a quick jump start into prototyping ideas, solutions, testing them and so on. Yeah. I love what you just said there. Tools are the last thing that matters. There are all these other things that matter more. So let's talk about that. What are these other things that in your opinion, and I, I tend to agree with you, matter more than just mastering Figma or whatever other tool there is? Well, the first thing that came to my mind, maybe because my I have this bias uh, uh, towards people being at the center of everything, is I think in UX design, people matter most in two ways, if you want. On, on one hand, I think the users should be, obviously. And, and I know that there's a conversation in the design industry that argues that we should ditch the term user and just call them people or humans because user sounds very, uh, I don't know, impersonal and a bit strange, but we normalized it by even the name of our role, right? User experience designer. So I think that human people should be at the core of everything we do and understanding them is actually our mission. But also I think that a very important part of the design role is working with other people. So aligning people around a goal for your users. <laughs> so collaboration for me was probably the, the most important part of my design role, being able to align people around a design goal and to make sure that things are happening and that the, the, the user's needs are reaching other people in our team. So everyone understands why we're doing what we're doing and so on. I think that's the most important part of design. And then there's also the, the process, if you want the thinking, like what's the problem I'm trying to solve? Why am I solving this problem? Is this the right problem to solve? Is this the right way to solve it? And so critical thinking, always asking questions, always being intentional with everything you do in design challenges and design projects um, was something that looking back became more important. So in the beginning, it was just like the classic checklist. I have to do wireframes and then I have to do a prototype and then it's something that I, I criticize openly today. But in the beginning, I was just like that, obviously. So I kept going from one stage to another in this linear process, which was totally fake and unnatural. And it proved to be very messy in reality. And there was a lot of back and forth. And now I know the design process is nonlinear. But in the beginning, it was pretty much like that. And then eventually I started redefining my own definition of UX design. And today I think it's, it's people, process and thinking. Those mistakes are part of the growth. That's yeah. how you learn, isn't it? That's the, nobody comes out of school or gets self-taught and is a perfect designer or knows everything about design. So I think we all have done those mistakes. We all have done those processes thinking, I, I technically, I don't need uh, I don't know, wireframes here, but I'm going to do them because it's, it's expected of me. So yeah. it's expected for the, from the portfolio to, to have a wireframe. So yeah, I think we've all done those. But you said yeah. something interesting there. Aligning people around the common goal is one of the most important parts of the role. So tactically, on a daily basis, how do you go around about doing that? Doing that? Well, if we're going in the trenches of how you're, we're doing design work and trying to understand uh, what it feels like from the front line, I think that you do it through a lot of conversation. And I think that what I've learned gets us to the best results, not only in terms of the best alignment, but also the best outcome for our users is to be in a constant state of 
in a st constant conversational state. So I think that the number one method, if you want, or path to building alignment is to have continuous conversations while also respecting boundaries. Like now we're like in our free time. And so I've been, I, I say that because I've been in projects and I've worked with startups where uh, the boundaries were very, very fuzzy and we kept talking even Sunday evening conversations about the users or an interesting insight or an interesting idea. And I, I, I don't want to support that anymore. I feel like that, that we should also, we should talk as much as possible, but also respect the mental health and breaks and disconnecting and having a personal life. So, so with that uh, out of the way, I think conversations should be a uh, part of our daily role with other people. And I think that as designers, I mean, the purpose of design deliverables is actually to create the right conversations, to generate the right conversations, and to align people around different goals at different stages of the design product, uh, of the design process. So with everything we do as designers, we basically socialize design goal, a design insight, or a couple of design insights. We socialize the rationale behind everything we're doing and everything. So we're, we're socializing um, insights and everything. So that's why we should fight for conversation. And that to be more tactical, even more tactical, I think we do it through, okay, I'm not a fan of personas, but it's the first example that comes to my mind. So if you want people who are not designers, non-designers to understand who you're designing for, at least in, in an abstract conceptual way, right? You can, or make it less abstract or less conceptual. You can build this fictional person that, again, there's a lot to unpack about personas, I'm not a huge fan of personas, but it's, it's a way in which we socialize, we circulate insights that we have from research. And the, the main idea or the gist of what I'm trying to say is that we should do it continuously. And we basically do it through our work. There's a, again, to stay on a tactical level, another way that I've managed to do that and rally people around, not necessarily a goal, but more so a, a persona, if you will, was um, a few years ago, I was working with a company where every user customer would have a profile and a profile picture attached to that. And then sometimes we would bring them in for testing. And then we would take the profile if they had a problem in testing or if they got a bit frustrated or whatever. And then we would write down kind of a quote from them. And then we would print the profile picture on that same piece of paper. And then we put it on the walls. So every single day you would walk into the office, you would have on the left-hand side and right-hand side on the walls, you would walk kind of like on this corridor full of images and quotes from customers. And that in the morning framed the work you were doing. It's like, okay, these, yeah. it's, it's not an abstract user somewhere in the world we're doing it for it's these people on the left on, on the right hand side so humanizing who we're designing for i find that to be a great way of bringing the entire product team together around that goal because as designers we care about the users because that's our job but the engineers maybe product managers testers it's not really part of their job to care if you somehow manage to bring them around turn them around and make them care they're going to start advocating for design themselves. Um, so kind of makes your job a bit easier too. <laughs> so you say people matter the most and we agree on that. So how about the business? Because at the end of the day, none of us would have jobs if the businesses would be working for wouldn't make any money. So yeah, the people matter, but what's the balance there between designing for people and designing for the business? 
I love the question. And I know that it's actually the title of your podcast. So you probably have this conversation quite often, but I didn't really have the chance to have this particular conversation of, uh, with this focus. So I'm very happy to talk about my thoughts <laughs> about this problem. Um, I, I think that I want to start by saying that understanding the importance of business and collaborating with business and understanding business is a maturity lesson in your career ladder or in your career path. I feel that in the beginning, I somehow demonized business, like business is the bad guy, businesses are like the evil that's trying to like steal from the good experience that the user has, that, that there's always going to be a conflict between what the business wants and what the user wants. And I have to be the superhero that sort of advocates for the user perpetually and doesn't allow the business to win this battle because the world will, will go to pieces if, if business wins. So business was the bad guy for me for a couple of years early in my career. And then eventually I realized that I was looking at things from a very skewed or inefficient perspective, because like you said, I was, I had a job because that business was working. So the business needs to work. And it's definitely not the, the devil that I, I, I felt like I have to stand up against the business and reject and push back on whatever the business or the CEO wants. So then I eventually understood that we have to become friends. And I feel that it's a mistake that I see very often in junior ship with many designers. I think that, um, that um, you become a mature designer once you understand that you're also working for the business. I mean, you're working for the business. That's what, where you get paid from. So the business also has to succeed. If you build a perfect product, but the company has to go out of business, then, then Okay, that's great, but but it's not really, it's not ideal. So, so to your question, I feel that business is a very important part of our work as well, and understanding this the, the business side of things and building. I I'm not a huge fan of the word empathy. I think it's very much diluted these days and overused. But to sort of if it makes it easier to like push my point, building empathy towards the business as well. So not just towards the user, but also what is the business struggling with? What is the business trying to achieve? What would make our product more successful? What are our success metrics? Also speaking the language of business was something that it took me a while. So in the beginning, I just zoned out whenever I heard business conversations or, or so, I, I, I felt like it wasn't my place or my role as a designer to understand whatever the the business was in regards to but but now i realize that it's essential as well so it's not just the user it's also the business so yeah the bottom line would be that business is very important <laughs> and we should listen to the business people as well yeah I find that one of the more effective ways to have this conversation with business people is to speak their language, obviously. <laughs> and speaking their language, what do I mean by that? I mean, using data. Because most of the business functions around design are very much data focused, whether it's someone in finance, whether it's someone in customer support and they have these costs that they need to cut down, whether it's a CEO who cares about the bottom line, whenever you're able to link your work on a daily basis with some sort of a metric that other business functions care about, it's much easier to have these conversations and it makes people listen to design versus 10 years ago, when we didn't really know about these you know, metrics, KPIs, what are all these things? And we would just come in as a more, more, more of an 
artistic function, if anything. So how do you use data on a daily basis to have, or, or do you use data on a daily basis to have those conversations? So I think that in my experience, it wasn't that much about data, but about numbers in general. So I feel that business people respond very well to like the language they're speaking, which most of the times is ROI or whatever way they translate or they, they name their profit or their business goals. So I feel that in the beginning, I used to be not naive, but like very, very, how can I say sweet, <laughs> a sweet person that was just talking about how the users will love this and it's going to be great. And we're building such an amazing experience for our users. Yay. But nobody, I mean, of course they care. Everybody wants their product to be nice to use and to be delightful and to be uh, usable and useful. But at the same time, I wasn't able to get buy-in for research or for hiring new people or for if, if, if I couldn't, like, just like you said, speak their language and their language is numbers because that's the mindset they're in, because they're in a way, I think the people running the business are our users as well. So we also need to understand them to understand who is this persona, if you want, that we're talking to and what's the vocabulary, what's the, what's his space, if you want, what, what's the, of course, the language, but also like, what are his concerns? What are the goals, the needs, everything when it comes to business? I think we should make an equal, maybe not equal, but we should make a considerable effort in that direction as well. So in my experience, yes, speaking the language worked. And um, it, I, over time, working with different startups and with senior people from business, I got better at articulating what might be. So now I, I feel that like experiences in a way like we means that we have educated guesses, if you want. So right. I, my intuition got better as to what I might need to say to get by and for whatever thing I was trying to get by in. So language, yeah, you made a great point. Speaking the same language is essential. I find that whenever you are able to speak their language and have conversations around whether you said you know, ROI or whatever the, the metrics are in that business, these people also become very much your supporters. They become allies in the business because suddenly they realize, oh, oh, this design team, they can actually help us push metrics. I didn't realize that. If it's a com uh, if it's an organization that didn't have a lot of designers before or doesn't have a design culture, it's not really well known that design can push metrics in the right way. So I find that by having this conversation in their language, you earn their trust, which is so important, and you earn an ally at work, which again is very very important. And and there will come a time when you will need you know you will need some budget for research or whatever. That's where you'll be able to cash in all of that karma that you build up over time. Absolutely agree with that. And I think that trust is such an important part. And I think that they feel like somebody needs to fight for them as well. And when you show that as a designer, definitely they feel just like you said, that someone is on their side. And I think another thing or phenomenon that helped us with building a better, a stronger relationship with business was that I, I feel that in the industry as a whole, the conversations around how design benefits business have like increased or they're more out there or more often or louder, starting from studies like McKinsey's study of the design industry and how much the design can benefit numbers 
and and the profit and the effectiveness of a company. So there were studies about it. Senior leaders from like the big four, whatever, wh- whoever is influential in the world of business, I feel like voices started tackling these topics and the importance of design. And we've seen a lot of reports. We've seen a lot of conversations. I think now they're they're again a bit tuned down. But there was this moment in time where even through the like design thinking, which I'm not a fan of, and I think that for some parts is doing more harm than good. But I think that this entire conversation is about innovation, design thinking, every company needs to have at least at least the business people starting hearing about design, which is pretty powerful in itself. And, and they gave it a chance if you want. So th- we, I think these buzzwords kicked the door open, but right. were the foot in the door that we needed to like start a conversation. And um, yeah, so I think that a couple of things happened uh, at the same time, which were favorable to these two sides of the of the fence to like join forces or maybe i have a personal bias around how things shaped out for me <laughs> yeah well we've seen a lot of companies in the past 10 years that have been really successful and whether you look at the media coverage or anything like that it's spoken quite a lot about how the impact of design or what the impact of design was on that company and i think more and more people are listening to that or are are watching those examples and they want some of that success themselves, which is where they go in and hire designers. But what I found in the past is that, okay, someone hires designers because they've seen that Apple has succeeded or all these design-led companies or design-informed, whatever, but they don't really know what to do with design. Hiring a designer versus being a design-driven organization, totally not the same thing. So do you have any experience being the first one in a company and having to build any, anything like that? Yeah, I've had this experience in, in my life and it's not a very happy place to be, <laughs> but it's also an exciting challenge because you get to shape an organization, but also a mindset around design. And that's something that you like aspire to be able to do when, when you grow in your career. So I'm not complaining that I've had this situation in my life, but it, it wasn't easy. I think that there's a limit to this experience in itself. So I think that I would only be able to be the only designer or the first designer in a company for a couple of years in my career. And then I do want to join mature design organizations and go in, in, in companies where design is already settled and yeah. is already influential and the power, the, the value of design was already proven and everybody agrees that design is important. But yeah, I've had the experience of being the first designer or having uh, to convince people that design is important. And I think that the best way to do that in the beginning uh, is to, two things have worked in my experience to go in a very tactical, on a very tactical level again. Number one is doing small proof of concepts. So I think it's it, it's it's very valuable to show people in with small features or small improvements or small research projects, show them at a controllable scale that doesn't require a lot of funding or a lot of effort from their side, showing them why design is valuable or how design can benefit them. So doing these pilot experiments would, would definitely be a way in which to start out 
promoting, evangelizing and getting buy-in for design and scaling design. And then the second thing is exposing them to users as much as possible. You sort of touched upon briefly earlier in our conversation uh, on the importance of seeing the users. And I want to build on that because I feel that whenever I saw significant shifts in, in mindset or in attitude towards how important research is or how important design is in general, it was in the presence of users, not necessarily live, but like as a result of seeing how the users interact with the product. And many times it was like on a ground of panic or on right. grounds of like just concern or, or being frightened by the issues that you see when you observe your users interacting with the product. So, and then you want design to save you, obviously. Then you want, then you say, okay, maybe my bet wasn't right. And maybe the product needs improvement. So please, now I trust you. I handle, please save me. This is the kind of shifts that I've seen in my own experience. So yeah, two things, uh, small projects to start building on and gaining power an influence. And then as much as possible, everyone who's a non-believer should be around users because that will make them believe. <laughs> there is nothing that I have ever seen change the minds of business stakeholders faster than seeing a user struggle or a customer struggle using their products. They're instantly, their, their mindset shifts instantly because I guess in their minds, you're not really thinking on a daily basis about the user again this is not their job so suddenly you are you get the reality in front of you very close to see someone struggle with the product that you're trying to build and mentalities shift very fast and the importance of design becomes apparent very quickly so you said something you know it's not a very happy place to be to be the first designer in a company where design is not very valued is not a very happy place to be and i've been there myself and i agree it's not a very happy place to be but i think it's a place of opportunities and a place of growth because I have experienced tremendous growth, more growth in the roles where I, where design wasn't valued than the ones where I came in and people kind of knew, okay, we know what this business function can do. And I've, I found that a lot in the business to business world, in the enterprise software, where design is historically not known to be a differentiator, like in the consumer world. And you go into a business to business company, they never had a designer before. The difference you can make there is so much bigger than going and working for Spotify and working on a little feature in a corner of the app or something like that. So, you know, you work in business to business right now. And I'm wondering how have you seen that moving from ING working on a consumer product to UI path, working on an enterprise software. How have you seen that opportunity and, and growth happen for you? Well, it was a huge change for me on many levels because there was also like a different style of company, if you want, a different size and obviously maturity. So UiPath was a fast growing startup, hyper growth. I joined right before one year or two years before IPO. And so it was sort of a big company, but it wasn't ING bank big. So the, the, the pace and the way of working was completely different from what I knew and what I was accustomed to. So I've been with ING for 10 years. So I was very much, yeah, I had roots in, in the way we were doing things, the speed at which we were doing things, the pressure. And when I moved to UiPath, I felt like I'm overwhelmed completely by the pace at which things are being done and the like the hecticness of everything and the opportunities that you have for shaping 
uh, design language, and I'm meaning I'm I'm talking about the design language within the company, not the design system or something like a style guide. Um, So. So it was a huge opportunity and it was also a culture shock, if you want, uh, because I wasn't ready for that kind. I wasn't, I mean, not that I wasn't ready, but I wasn't used to that speed and that hecticness and, and like grabbing things to solve from a bucket of many things to be done. Design was not yet mature. I wasn't the first designer to join UiPath. There were plenty, several designers before me. So we kind of joined forces. When I came, I already joined this front line of designers trying to evangelize design and the importance of design. But what you can uh, imagine or what's an interesting thing is that there was no design leadership. So there wasn't anyone in a design leadership role. There was no, okay, okay, maybe not many companies have a chief design officer, like a C-level role for designers. Maybe that's a rarity, but we didn't even have a VP of design and we didn't even have a director of design. So there was no one representing us on that level, uh, talking to top management, talking to the CEO or the chief product officer. There was was no one on design. So that was a clear uh, telltale that there's a problem with how design is being valued and perceived and the power, the influence design has within our company. And that changed after I joined, I think in even less than one year, we had infused the company with design talent, senior uh, leadership talent from the U.S., mostly Seattle, uh, mostly Microsoft. <laughs> so there was this right. this new wave of leaders that were trying to build up a design culture and uh, I apologize if anyone can that's hear okay. babies in the background, but this is just uh, life. That's that's the life. That's the life. Yeah. 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 So I think a lot of these conversations that we're having right now are really important to have f- for junior designers to listen to, because I feel you know you said it yourself. You're not educated in design. I I I am, but I can't really say that I've learned a lot in design school that I'm still using today. I think there is a fundamental problem with design education today. Well, with education in in general, but we're not going to talk about that today. But with design education, I think it's severely lacking behind what the business world needs because the business world moves at a really fast pace and an education, a traditional education system has a really hard time keeping up with that. And that's fair. So I know that you, many other designers, many other design leaders all over the world are trying to solve that problem in a way or another. So you have the Design Academy. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? Why did you start it? What gap in the market have you seen? How have you tried to plug that and, and, and all of that? Yeah, I love to talk about that because it's my my most important project as a designer up to date. And it started just like you assumed by spotting a gap in the market, by understanding that there's a pain a huge need for better design education. Of course, I didn't start out believing that I can create the perfect system or the perfect recipe. There's no such thing. It's a combination of many things that a person needs to do in order to start their design career. But we observed by looking at other boot camps, by following conversations in the industry, and most of all, the experience that bootcamp graduates had after they finished the bootcamp. And once they they were on the market and had to deal with the realities that they 
many times they weren't warned about or weren't very transparent to them. So we kept seeing myself and when I say we, um, I co-founded Mento Design Academy with my, uh, my co-founder uh, Radu. He was a design manager at Fitbit. He's now VP of design. So he also had, had a startup in Germany. And so he also had leadership roles working with designers, junior designers, and mentoring designers in different boot camps, uh, the bigger boot camps that probably everyone knows. So he was mentoring and doing, and I was also mentoring through UX Goodies. So we were both doing similar work in different setups, and we were encountering the same problems again and again, and the same stages in which transition, the transition to UX design started to hurt. And so we realized that there's a gap there, that there's an opportunity. And for me, there was this constant feeling that, okay, now I have a community on UX goodies. I have close to 200,000 followers. What does that even mean? It means that now I have a voice, whatever that is, and I also have a responsibility. So what am I doing for all these people who, in a way, give me some of offer me so they grant me some of their time and what am I giving what am I offering how am I helping them how am I I have a lot of messages even today from people in my inbox and I felt like in the past before mental was launched I, I had nothing no way of helping them I kind of pointed them towards different resources but it felt very unstructured it felt not it, does, it didn't feel like a reliable system of helping people transition into UX design or start a UX design career from from scratch so so Mento was sort of on my mind for several years before actually having the conversation when Radu reached out to me. And then it took a year to build it. We underestimated how difficult it is to build a design school of any sorts and how much content and effort and talent had to go into it. We assembled a team of uh, 10 designers with different backgrounds, different specialties. So uh, researchers, visual designers, even a project, uh, so design ops. We had people from different backgrounds write about the part of the curriculum that was where they were specialized in. So we try to fix many of the problems and starting with the broken curriculums that we ran into in other boot camps and continuing to the problem with mentors not being specialized in design. It's a problem you see in the design industry today as well. So many bootcamp mentors and big bootcamps, they're actually front-end developers or they're graphic designers or they're branding designers. So who is teaching you UX design is another important point. So we had, like, I can talk about it for days because I've been in this problem space so immersed for three years, I think now that I, I kind of understand everything about it. So, But that would be it in a nutshell. <laughs> So what are some of the keys that you've spotted as that, that are useful for someone who either wants to transition or wants to start from scratch? What are the two, three things that are just so much more important than everything else to, to learn in order to transition or start? Yeah, I, I that's my favorite question in the world. And I'm actually launching a course about it with a big course platform. <laughs> so yes, this is the most interesting question. So what do you need? And I, 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 I kept thinking for many years, for the past years, building Mento, doing UX goodies, doing the podcast, doing all the content that's educational at its uh, foundation. So what am I teaching people? What am I telling people? What is the message that I have to send out there? And I realized that by by doing a lot of 
introspection, by being as self-aware as possible through, I don't know, journaling, watching the conversations I have with people and genuinely listening to the people who are either struggling to start their career switch or just they just did it and they're struggling with what follows after you learn the theory and do a project. So by really, really paying attention to this problem space, I realized that there are like four main ingredients that you need for a successful career switch into UX design. And those ingredients are theory on one hand. I wouldn't say this is the most important because the theory is like, like design, working as a designer is very practical and you do need to know the concepts. You do need to speak the language. You do need to understand why we do what we do and everything. So it's, it is important, but even more important than theory, which is the first ingredient is the second ingredient, which is practice. So doing real design work, you like with everything I, in life, you learn by doing and design makes no exception or it's like in, in particular important to work as a designer before understanding what goes into UX design. And uh, practice is super important and it feels very discouraging or daunting or difficult in the beginning. Oh my God, but where do I start? Who will hire me? Nobody will hire me. I have no background. I have no experience. How do I find my first project? But through our bootcamp and through all the work I've been doing, mentoring people, I've learned that it's not that hard to find the real first design project that you can apply the theory to. I think it's really important to, okay, do a course, basic course that gives you the theory or, or I don't know, there are so many, I think you can do it for free on the internet today, but you just need some structure. Uh, So you gain the theory, you apply it into practice. You can do that by reaching out to people in your network, asking them if they have any sort of design problem with their business, with their, I don't know, restaurant, online shop, website, presentation website, whatever it might be. Someone in your network has something that you can improve. So, and there where you, that's where you get real experience working with a real person. So that's all you need to do. Just try a little to reach out to people to find real projects. And then the other two ingredients, which I value uh, a lot as well, are mentorship, which is why I decided to call my bootcamp Mento. I think it's, it's really, really important to have someone giving you feedback, challenging you, teaching you how to think, because the biggest problem when you're starting out is that you don't even know how to look at things. So you're doing things, but how do I look at them? You are not able to think critically from the get-go, and it's totally natural. A mentor will teach you how to think critically and which are your blind spots, where are your unknown unknowns, what you need to do uh, that you haven't done yet. Mentors are essential. I transitioned without a mentor, or I had some accidental, informal mentors, but I think it's ideal and uh, the strongest foundations are built with mentorship as well. And then the last thing is community. I, whatever learning journey you're on, community will help you uh, stay on track, feel motivated, feel like you're part of a bigger group that's going through the same thing, help you figure out some, I don't know, roadblocks that you need to overcome or things that just, just knowing that someone else is doing the same thing as you are at the same time is is pretty powerful. And I feel that design communities are very accessible, very welcoming. I feel the design industry as a whole is a very nice place to work in because we're working with people. So most of the times we're nice. <laughs> we're just, I don't know, welcoming. So to to recap very quickly, theory, practice, mentorship, and community. This is what you need for a strong transition into UX design. In my I feel mentorship. 
Well, yeah, for sure. I feel mentorship is really easy to get nowadays it's with incredible platforms like ADP List. It's as easy as finding a person in your time zone and booking a slot. That's it. It's There's no excuse to not have a mentor today if you need one or if you want one or if that's what you need, there is no excuse to not go there because it's just this platform has made it so easy for everyone. So I, I wanted to say uh, whenever people ask, where do I find my first project? One of the things that I say to them, I, I've been involved in the NGO world for about 12, 13 years now of volunteering. And I've made that connection. There are so many NGOs that are need, uh, NGOs that do great work that obviously cannot afford a full-time designer on staff that need some, some help. And I would argue that that is a better project to do rather than taking one of these, you know, fake clients.com or whatever all these sites are, because not, not only you get to work in a real world situation, but you also get to have an impact on the world, which is the, one of the reasons some of us started this in the first place is to be able to impact. And so, so I always say there are so many NGOs out there that need design help badly that you could be, it could be a, a mutually beneficial relationship. Absolutely. And I just want to mention that there are even places that kind of gather opportunities from NGOs. And I would recommend checking out democracylab.com. That's a website that has NGO volunteering work opportunity opportunities. And another one is uxrescue.org. So these two websites are like aggregators of, of opportunities from NGOs. And definitely volunteering is a wonderful place to to build your first case study and experience. Yeah, we'll put those in the show notes so uh, they can be easily found. I, I didn't even know about them. See, that's so great that uh, we can now um, share these resources with more people. Yeah. So uh, before we finish, I really want to talk about UX goodies and you as a brand. Over the past few years, you have built a brand. Let's just say it as it is. You're posting a massive amount of content to help up-and-coming designers become better. And not only up-and-coming designers, but even people who work in design and have worked in design for a while. So I'm just curious, how did you think about starting that and why? Well, I, I, I feel like I have the long story and the short story. So the long story would be <laughs> uh, that before creating UX goodies, I was actually doing some social media work for some rock bands in Romania. So that's how it all started. I started doing social media without being a social media person, but kind of, I had friends that had this rock band and I said, you know what, I'm going to help you grow in social. It's really important. Even if you have like a live concert, it's nothing if the internet doesn't see it. So I'm going to help right. you with that. So I did social media for this rock band uh, for two, three years. And then I realized that at some point, what if I do this like for myself <laughs> and I, I do it for myself and I do it for something that I'm passionate about and I was passionate about UX design. So I started building this page where I basically just, I was spending a lot of time on Instagram anyhow. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to spend this time constructively from now on. So th the point of UX goodies was never to have many followers and because I didn't think it was possible. I thought that UX design was such a small niche and who would yeah. ever want to like learn UX from Instagram because it's not the place to learn. So I didn't start out saying I'm going to build this page and I'm going to be like this brand. And I had no idea where the journey would take me. It just started like a small personal project to not waste so much time and to kind of force me to be learning every day something new or synthesizing a topic that was interesting or doing some sort of research work or maybe, I don't know, it was just a self-discipline 
discipline kind of effort for learning. And I started doing it. And of course, it wasn't spectacular for a long time. It was like I had 400 followers. And I remember very, very clearly that I said that if I ever reach 4,000 followers, it's going to be unbelievable. I will tell everyone. <laughs> I mean, my all my friends will know. Everybody. It's, yeah. <laughs> it was like a dream to reach 4,000 followers. And now I'm at almost 220,000. So, so yeah, the thing is that I did it for not fun, but I actually genuinely enjoy social media. So, so I think yeah. that's one thing. As many people think that, oh, I should start a personal brand. Everybody has their UX Instagram nowadays and everybody has a personal brand and I have to do it. I have to be there. Otherwise, I won't find jobs and I'm not competitive. But if you don't like it, maybe that's not your way of of building right. a personal brand. Maybe you want to write medium articles, which is always superior to creating an Instagram post to be honest. So if when I when I started writing on medium, I realized what it, what it means to create long-form content and how difficult it is to actually build a coherent story in words, not just like bite-sized Instagram posts, one one pagers with these are the resources which of course those take time as well cuz I I spent a lot of time on Instagram. So the following that I have today is the re the result of hard work i'm not going to minimize it it's it happened because i spent a lot of time building this community yeah. but it you don't have to i mean for people looking to build a personal brand there are many many ways you can start a podcast like you did you can start i don't know maybe you're more into yeah writing whatever works best for you and the most important part is that you have to enjoy it Oh, for, for sure. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk talks about if you want to create content, you don't need to get on video like he does. It's just because he's comfortable on video. That's why he does it. Maybe you don't like to hear your voice. Then you should certainly not do podcasts. But maybe you're good at writing, but maybe you're good at graphic design. You just need to find what you it would enjoy the most, which is exactly what you said. So I, I like that. Do, do, what have you learned in the years you've made all this content? A lot of things. I think that UX goodies became part of my identity, professionally, personally. So it's it just I if I start talking about what I've learned, <laughs> I I can never stop. I, I've learned so right. much. But uh, but I'm gonna just maybe tell you the top three, two three things that come to my mind. Um, I've learned that. You learn a lot when you teach others. So teaching, well, I don't consider myself a UX teacher really because I think teachers are traditionally people that build a course that's like consistent. And I don't feel like I did that. I, I have a lot of bite-sized content. I have a lot of content everywhere, video in all formats, but it's not like this. Like I go to university and for three years, I teach people how to do something. I don't feel like I have that level of knowledge and expertise and authority. So I'm not a teacher, but I feel that every time I try to present a concept or promote a concept to my followers, I'm learning. I'm the first one to learn. So that's really, really valuable. I think this is one of the most important lessons or a thing that I'm grateful for. Another important lesson is that uh, having a I hate the word personal brand in a way because I feel like it's also a bit fetishized and everybody talks about personal branding yeah. and it feels a bit like commercial and for some parts cheap and I really I'm not a big fan of calling it a personal brand but that's what it is I mean I'm not gonna invent another name for it but it's great to have a personal brand because my network has grown so much and I've met a lot of people from all over the world I've made a lot of friends I found new mentors so it's incredible once you have once you're 
comfortable enough to put yourself out there through any means that makes sense to you and you're proud of and you enjoy and, and it's coherent with your aligned with your personality, then once you're out there, you're going to meet people. And that's the best part of the journey. So for me, what, what mattered most is that I got to meet all the people that otherwise I wouldn't have known from my podcast yeah. co-host to my mentor, Stephen Gates, to, I don't know, even talking to Chris Doe was something that I, I wouldn't have had the opportunity if I wasn't there consistently putting myself out there. So there are a lot of benefits, but the most important part is meeting people. Yeah, 100%. For me, the podcast is two things. One of them is meeting people and the other one is giving back to the community. I really want people to listen to this and at the end of an episode think, I've learned something today. I've enjoyed that. So this 100%. And teaching is the best way to learn. I agree with that. Joanna, we're almost at the one hour mark. So I'll ask you the end of podcast questions. Two of them, everyone gets these and then I will um, let you go and, uh, you know, did care, care for the baby who was crying a bit earlier. So yeah. <laughs> first one is, uh, what is one soft skill that you wish more designers would possess? Critical thinking. I, I, I have absolutely no hesitation. Critical thinking. I think many designers sometimes forget to like question themselves and question the things they're doing. And the point is to like have a rationale and intention behind everything we do. So critical thinking is, is the number one. Good. We haven't had that answer just yet. Ooh. So uh, great. That's good. The other one is what is one piece of advice that has changed your career for the better? Hmm. I got to think a little because it's, yeah, like take your have, time. Yeah, it's like overwhelming uh, pressure moments in my mind. I have a lot of things. It's hard to pinpoint just one. I think there were a lot of things, but one of them was definitely in the beginning of my career. I also created this sort of professional persona. We all have a professional persona. It's like how our minds work. We, we are show up as something that's a bit controlled and and adjusted to work in society and so on. So the best piece of advice that I got was from my mentor, Stephen Gates, who told me that there's nothing more powerful than being authentic and vulnerable in as a designer, but as a professional in general. So I was very much afraid to say something that wasn't right or say something that's controversial or say something that's uncomfortable. And he pushed me to become more authentic and to be a bit more confrontational with everything that I do. And I was avoiding or... Yeah. So just being authentic and being you, if that makes yeah. sense, that that's the number of course one piece it makes of sense. advice. For sure. That's, and it's a good piece of advice and we haven't had that one either before. That's so great. there you go. <laughs> that is great. Yana, where can people find out more about you, reach out to you, follow all your content, all yeah. of that stuff? Yeah, I think you, you should start. So I have a lot of content on different platforms. I think you <laughs> should start. Everyone should start from Instagram. My handle is UX goodies with no point, no line, no nothing, just UX goodies in one word. And now I'm trying to grow my TikTok because I feel like it it helps me. I, I laughed at TikTok and I thought it was like the worst place for content in the history of content. But now <laughs> I find it pretty addictive because it, it gives me the freedom to not calculate so much or over-engineer the content I create. It's just very spontaneous and it, it's like liberating in a way. So I've started to enjoy it. 
and on TikTok I'm UX goodies. Actually, I'm UX goodies everywhere. So if you want to find me on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok, wherever, it's UX goodies. It's that simple. And also people can listen to my own podcast, which is called Honest UX Talks. And we have it on all the platforms. And I think that's it. And also Mental Design Academy. So if anyone is listening that's looking to transition into a UX design career or knows someone who wants to transition into a UX design career, Mento Design Academy is the way to go. <laughs> Those will be very easy to find in the show notes. We will put everything there so people can easily get a hold of you. Joanna, this has been a great conversation and a fantastic experience. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been uh, really great. I'm sure people will learn a lot from this conversation. Just as I said earlier, when people finish an episode, what I want them to say is, I've learned something today. <laughs> so uh, check. This has happened today. Learning has happened. I'm happy. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joanna. Thank you for inviting me. That's a wrap for today. I hope you found this episode useful and that you've learned something that you're ready to implement at work tomorrow. If you've enjoyed this, as always, it would mean the world to me if you'd share it with your community, if you'd leave a review, and of course, if you'd remember to tune in for the next one. Peace.